Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Amy, Todd, and Carl are joined today by Dr. Ken Hughes to talk about preaching and pastoral ministry. Their discussion, taped in front of a live audience, covers lots of ground, so buckle up. And stay tuned after the conversation to find out how to get a free MP3 from the Alliance. Well, good afternoon, everybody. As advertised, we have the Mortification of Spin team with us. Uh, with Dr. Hughes for a panel discussion this afternoon. Uh, Todd Pruitt on the end down there, lead pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Amy Bird, uh, author of Housewife Theologian, who was brought on to this uh, radio broadcast, first of all by being interviewed about her book, and was found to be so knowledgeable and engaging that she was invited to be a regular. And then we know about Dr. Truman. <laughs> well, it's a real pleasure to, uh, well, it's not a pleasure for me to be here. I'm paid to, to be here at my own institution. Uh, but it's a real pleasure to be able to, to record the podcast at uh, Westminster Seminary. I'd like to start by expressing thanks on behalf of the Alliance uh, for, for the invitation to come uh, and do this here today. The podcast started just under two years ago, really, almost as a uh, a semi-joke between Todd and myself. Originally, it was just myself, Todd, Mike Harris, one computer and two microphones sitting in a room in Church of the Savior. The philosophy of the podcast was we wanted to be, we really did want to be the gentleman amateurs. Emphasis on the amateur rather than the gentleman, I think, on the whole uh, of the, the, the podcast world. Every podcast is unscripted. Uh, we, we fly by the seat of our pants. Uh, hence the the, the feeling of, of amateurism and total lack of professionalism uh, that frequently comes through. Uh, Tim has already introduced uh, Todd, but I would like to, to add that we like to think of him at the Alliance as uh, the reformed theological equivalent of meatloaf. Uh, that's the, the rock star, not the food stuff. Uh, I think people like to listen to him, but nobody will admit it in public. That's the... Uh, and uh, Amy, who... Amy came late to the show, but we brought her on board because having interviewed her on the program, uh, I remember thinking, we have found the thinking Christian's Joyce Meyer. Uh, and we need, we need to bring her on straight away. What you really so. found is somebody who doesn't take your jokes personal. Yeah. That's the only reason why I'm here. The only person who ever agreed to come back on the show having been interviewed the first time. So it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Our major focus is we, we want to really divide this session into, into two halves. In the first half, we're going to uh, ask Dr. Hughes some questions and explore his own uh, thinking about his own ministry and about ministry in general. And then in the second half, we're going to transition to picking up the questions that many of you have submitted uh, in the box uh, at the back over the last two days. We'll just uh, start by saying one of the, the things that I most admire and appreciate about Dr. Hughes is this is a man who's been in the pastor for a long time and has spent long periods at one place. And that is an increasingly rare thing. Uh, quite often one comes across 
pastors these days for whom their first couple of pastorates are simply stepping stones until they find the big one or the one that's going to bring them you know, the glamour and success such that it is within the little world that we occupy. And I was very struck uh, a couple of years ago when a friend gave me a copy of Dr. Hughes's book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, which I think has to be... I, I know there are pious people who say you shouldn't say there's any book that's a must-read other than the Bible. That's far too pious. I think there are other books you should read in addition to the Bible, and this would be one of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's part personal testimony, part very practical advice on how to be a faithful pastor over a long period of time. So I would strongly recommend that you get hold of this book. And uh, now I'd like to turn to, to Dr. Hughes and, uh, and ask you, you've been a, a pastor for, for many, many years. What is the secret of keeping it fresh over all that time? I mean, you've preached for many, many years. You've preached for many years to the same people. Yeah. How do you manage to keep your own enthusiasm for the Word, and perhaps more importantly, the enthusiasm of the people who've heard you over many weeks, months, and years? All right. Um, I heard uh, uh, John Piper was at our church some years ago at a preaching conference, and there was about 50 or 60 of us at the end of the conference. It was late in the afternoon, and we were sitting around asking him questions. And, um, and he made a statement. He said, the reason God <clears throat> called me to preach is that I get saved every week. Very interesting statement from Piper. <laughs> and, of course, he was, uh, that was a teaser. Because then he turned us to 1 uh, Timothy 4.16, where Paul says to Timothy, give close attention to your life and your teaching, your doctrine, and you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And uh, he said that that's what he's done. And there's a sense, obviously, that he gets saved every week, revived, re regenerated, sanctified. And I have to say that, that that is really the truth. One of the things that I miss about not having a regular pulpit where I'm approaching a text freshly every week is that I would take a text, I'd get into it, and the thing that I was talking about, begin to see it, begin to be amazed, begin to see its connections through the rest of Scripture, how it applied, and I'd find my soul welling within me. And um, people have asked me before, and I said, I think one of the reasons that I was able to be fresh was that I did fresh exposition. It kept me fresh. And during times of craziness that you get in ministry, Pastors, you know what I'm talking about, where you just, the world's coming unglued. At least I had ultimate sanity in front of me when I was looking at the scriptures during those times. And so that is one thing that kept me fresh over those years. Um, loving the church, but uh, loving the Bible and being excited about it and always a fresh adventure. And did you find that the people responded to that? Did that flow over into their, their response to your preaching? They did. I think, if, I think if you're genuinely, and I don't mean I'm worked up and I'm excited about it, I've gone and stood on my head, so I'm excited about the Scripture. It's not that, but if you really get into it and look at, at the Scripture in all of its uh, multifoliate, polychrome dimensions and its life and its texture... It, it, it'll get you excited every week that you, here you are, here's the Bible, and here's the people. 
and what's my job to do? You know, open it. And that, that is, uh, that's been life-saving for me. I, I miss it very much. <clears throat> that makes me wonder, too, um, how much of that research and that excitement in your personal study mm -hmm. then do you carry over into your sermon? Like, I'm sure there's so much more research that, that you do than you actually deliver yeah. behind the pulpit. So how do you decide how much research to leave in the study and, and how to reach um, the small child who's um, struggling to pay attention and squirming in their seat mm -hmm. and then the mature Christian who's coming in and really you know, wanting some meat? Yeah, yeah you've time. got your um, eight-year-olds uh, eight and you've got your octogenarians. You've got that mm -hmm. whole range in there. Uh, uh, E.B. White in uh, Strunk and White's manual for grammar says that, that style is simplicity. And so I, I think the thing is, is clarity. And if you work at clarity, an eight-year-old can understand it, and so can an older person. And so clarity then means you've got to distill what you're going to communicate. And I, and I don't mean you can't use big words. You don't want to use a lot of big words with your congregation, but clarity is the key. And, and uh, C.S. Lewis once said, any fool can write learned language. And that's true. But to put it in the vernacular, that is the key. And I think, so I think if you're clear, it'll communicate. And uh, I know that uh, at College Church, it, you, will, you will also create a culture for listening. So it was taught in our Wonders of Worship when children were small, how to listen to a sermon. I mean, they taught them. And so when they got to be in sixth grade, then their teachers, oh, every few months would have them take notes and turn them into me so I could read what they were doing. So... Um, you, you get a culture of listening and so those are some of the things. That's an interesting comment you made about listening there because uh, I'm struck by how often in, in scripture hear O Israel, hearing is a command, yeah. it implies an activity on the yeah. one doing it yeah. uh, so you actually taught people how to hear, is, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, one thing is you've got to be patient to um, affect a culture of hearing and uh, I, I remember when I first came to that context, they, they'd been with interim pastors for several years, and so you kind of get these one-offs, and they can be entertaining or whatever, whoever comes in does. And, um, and I noticed that a lot of the men didn't carry Bibles. And I think it's because they thought, I don't need to carry a Bible, or I can pick one out of the pew. And it took about a year to get people carrying Bibles, paying attention to what you ha have to do. And you can create a culture of listening within your church where the children think they're supposed to listen too. And uh, where you hear the pages turn in the Bible, if you make a reference, it takes time to do that. But uh, what I said earlier about simplicity, that is to, to write yourself clear. And... Um, I'm not advocating manuscripting a sermon. I, I did most of mine. But I am saying when you're not, cl when you're not clear about something or you think you are, you need to write it out in a paragraph because if you can't put it in a paragraph, it's not going to be clear to the people. You need to be clear. And if it's clear, they'll listen. That's good. 
I, I was thinking about pastoring over the long haul. You, yeah. you served at uh, College Church for almost uh, 30 years. Um, we have students here that are studying, perhaps to be pastors. We have pastors here. Um, those that are pastors yeah. here uh, know what it is to have to uh, preach when your heart is breaking, to preach mm -hmm. through pain. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly have had, I'm sure, many of those experiences. What would you say uh, to a pastor or to a student studying to be a pastor about how to preach through pain, how to preach when your heart is breaking, perhaps over a period of time. And, and that source of heartbreak could be in a number of things, perhaps yeah. a, a division among the staff, uh, who, who knows what, mm -hmm. about with depression. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you preach through pain week after week mm -hmm. after week at need, when you need to? I, that, that is a great question. I hope I can Thank you flesh it out. for that. <laughs> I noticed you didn't say that about Carl or Amy's <laughs> questions, but... Of course. Go ahead. Of course. I expect all great questions now. So um, I had a, a Saturday once where I was going through a uh, immense controversy with, I, I, won't, I won't go into it, but it was a leader within my church. I mean, it was really painful. And I, uh, I had people writing me talking to me, calling me over the controversy, and it was, and I was preaching through the book of Philippians, and I was in my study, and my daughter Heather came in, who had uh, been long been married, the mother of six children, but she came by for some reason, and I was, I was to the point where I could almost couldn't talk uh, coherently. And I said to Heather, I said, Heather, I don't think I can stand in the pulpit tomorrow. And, uh, and I had, if you're familiar with it, I had Iodia and Seneca <laughs> as my text, you know, <laughs> which is the beginning of Philippians 4. And Heather prayed with me, and uh, I did it. And, I, I, and with all kinds of tension and all kinds of, of wondering about my own self as to how I was conducting myself in the light of what I was preaching. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. uh, a tremendous amount of tension. And I, uh, I don't think, I mean, it was not a time for self-revelation to my congregation. It was like, I'm really hurting this morning and I'm being criticized and I'm gonna have a hard time preaching. <laughs> Didn't do that kind of thing. But I, I preached it as God's word because I understood it was God's word to me and to the people, and I preached it. I, so it was that kind of sanity that comes from dealing with the text. So yeah. it was that kind of thing week after week when you're tired, when you don't feel good. And I, as I, uh, I was also, I, I said it's a great thing when it comes out of your inward affections of the heart without any affectation. But I want to say that, that you cannot expect to feel everything like you ought, ought to feel it every time you stand in front of the people. But it is an act of faith to preach God's holy word yeah. to them. There are times for self-revelation, but you need, to, you need to use those things judiciously. Yeah. Without, without leading the witness too much, would you say that um, pain, sorrow, uh, heartbreak um, serve the pastor well in his preaching ministry? Uh, I, I really do uh, think so. And um, how should I put it? 
pain and sorrow serve you well. I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it means that, well, I'm just going to say, everyone, I, I'm, I'm, I understand where you are because I've had all this pain. Mm-hmm. I think it's, if I can put it this way, it's more existential than that. If you really do understand their pain, if you really have had pain, if you really have had insecurities, if you really have had great disappointments, if you really have had stresses, if you really have had to pray over a child who you wondered at that particular time, that just, uh, I think that has a way of, of, of subjectively creeping into things so that people can sense that you're with them. Yeah. You don't have to tell them. I don't think you have to tell them. Yeah. No, I, there's times, yeah. but yeah. Can I perhaps tangentially to another question? Um, do pastors have friends? Should pastors have friends? How does friendship function for a pastor? Some people say a pastor does not have friends in a congregation. Carl, um, why are you asking that exactly? I need Is friends. There... Is there anybody out there be my friend? <laughs> okay, I'm cracking. Uh, 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 Kent, would you be his friend, I think is what we're getting at. I have a friend who needs a friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. But there are some high, you know, we were just talking about how the qualifications for eldership are, you know, exceptional. And so to be in a close, open friendship yeah. and to be under that limelight. I think what I learned early on, I had some idealism about friends that was uh, mediated over time and I think deepened. And uh, during that experience where liberating ministry from a success syndrome comes from, there was a, a young couple our age that came to, came to Christ um, under our ministry. And when things were uh, really, the wheels were coming off, they became critical. These are people we vacationed with, bared our souls with, disciple, young Christians, when the wheels started to come off, they walked and became critical. And that was really painful. And actually, I have to tell you, my wife, after 30-some years, got a letter of apology from that woman after 30 years for what they said and what they did. They're lovely people, but, you know, in process. Well, what I learned is I need close friends, but I need, for close confidants, I need mature Christians. Not, not someone who I've, I've led to Christ and I think is wonderful, and they are wonderful because there are burdens that they can't carry. There are things that they can't understand. And so I do have several really close friends. Um, you know, I could name a couple of them, but that wouldn't, they, they know who they are, and they are people who can carry the burden, understand with me that I know would never be disillusioned by the serpentine convolutions of my own pastoral soul. You know, they really understand me and love me, and I love them. So friendship, uh, I, I would say choose wisely when you choose a friend, and choose someone, if you're going to confide them, they have to be mature Christians. That's good. They have to. Do you have anything to add to that, Todd? Any, well, any reflections? Well, I in connection with that, then. Um, our wives know us better than anyone. Yeah. Uh, they know when we're hurting. They know when we're down. They know when something's wrong. Yep. Um, we need their, their 
as spouses, we help each other. Yeah. They're in our lives to help us. Yep. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, do we, as pastors, tell them everything that we're struggling with? How did you uh, deal with that with your wife, the things that you felt like you could tell her? Did you tell her everything? Did you guard her from certain things? And how did you decide that if you did? Well, I would say largely I told her most things. I, I, didn't, I didn't discuss elders business with her yeah. any more than, you know, I would, the thing, same thing I would ask of my elders, there are some things that yeah. you need to keep within the, the elders. But I, I ba basically bared my heart with her and shared everything with her. But there were things, if I heard a criticism of her, I didn't go home and say, you know, you know, Barbara, Mrs. So-and-so said this about you, and I heard this, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and it really has merit. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but all, all you men know that if you try to keep a secret from your wife and she thinks you got it, you're in big trouble. You know? <laughs> and uh, my, my wife is very forthright and very, very, very strong. I, I told Tim earlier, uh, because she's so fun and so out there, she, she may be wrong, but she's never in doubt. That's my <laughs> wife. <laughs> Which makes it great fun. Great fun to be married to her. And so most things, but there are things. And she doesn't need to know about the, uh, the, the sexual sins that are taking place mm -hmm. among my people and the huge surprises, unless for some prudential reason, she needs to know that to beware. Mm -hmm. But um, how, how, yeah. how did she tend to handle, I'm assuming that at some point in your pastoral ministry you were criticized. How did your wife handle that and how did you shepherd her through How did I that? shepherd her? Yeah. Well, um, my wife would take a criticism of me about 10 times yeah. deeper than I would take it to myself. Yeah. And so part of it was trying to help her see that they don't have horns, mm -hmm. they're just people. And, uh, and sometimes really godly people sin against you mm -hmm. and gossip against you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess she wouldn't mind me saying this. I remember she was sitting in a pew and there was this couple that had said, they'd been an elder and his wife who'd said bad things about me, about us, mm -hmm. and they were sitting in the pew in front of her in church, and they turned around and greeted her with a big smile, and she went and put her hand on the woman's shoulder and said, I want you to stop gossiping about us, she whispered to her in the pew on the Lord's Day. Wow. So, um, <laughs> um, Outstanding. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> My wife is uh, sitting over there with a big smile on her face. She has some great ideas in the house. And, and the, main, the main reason I ask that question is because um, Carl is criticized a lot in his church. <laughs> and, and it's primarily from his wife is the, is the thing. So. Oh, but she's your best critic. Yeah, yeah she is. I, I think it, that raises the important point that uh, it is important that your wife does not believe your own propaganda about yourself. Yeah. That's, that's very important. I, I should share this along this line. When I was a young pastor, I just started my pulpit ministry after all those decades, uh, that decade of youth ministry, I was preaching, 
And actually, I don't think I was feeling very good about my sermon, and so I, I said to my uh, wife before dinner, we'd gone home, I said, well, what did you think of the sermon this morning? And she began to criticize it. She, she, she said, well, there's this and this and this, that, and she was right about those things. And I remember I got, I got angry with her because I wanted affirmation. And she said, look, she said, if you want that kind of thing, ask someone else. If you want the truth, ask me. And, and, and don't ask me again unless you want the truth. And I, I, I sulked for a couple of days, and finally I went back to her and said, I want the truth. And she's always told me whether she thought I was on or off or if I was phony or, I mean, she has always told me. And you know what? She loves me more than anybody does in the world and wants the best for me, and she tells me the truth. So what a great thing that is. Mm -hmm. That reminds so, me of one of the questions that we were thinking of asking you is, with the extent of your ministry and the success of it, um, how do you cultivate humility? And I think that's a really good answer to that question, that, too, is to have a wife and be able to how listen to, to the truth. How to cultivate humility? <laughs> um, well, you know, it says we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The scriptures make it very clear about that. And if I read Philippians 2 properly, it says, consider other people more important than yourselves. So if you don't consider other people more important than yourself, uh, you're not living up to, to the Pauline ideal, the biblical ideal. I mean, you really do need to consider other people more important than yourself. And frankly, not to take yourself, you need to take your ministry seriously, but, and, and you, your spiritual life you need to take, but you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. You're totally expendable. God doesn't need me. And when I hear, I hope I'm kind of answering this, when I hear someone say, oh, so-and-so, he just committed some big sin and he's out of the pulpit and we need him back, I'm going, are you kidding? <laughs> You know, just what I said this morning, if you use a donkey, he doesn't need, doesn't need me and he doesn't need him. It's a privilege to serve. And um, actually, I think for myself, I'll just be very, this is really transparent. I, I'm, a, I'm a careful reader, but a slow reader. I, I don't work quickly. One of the reasons that I, I don't preach extemporaneously is I don't have the mind to be able to say, outline a sermon, get everything, and then just stand up there with my Bible and preach it. Some people can do that. The fact that I need a big security blanket in my preparation means that I've had to prepare hard over the years, and having, so my weakness has actually amounted to my strength that I've manuscripted things, written myself clear, prayed myself full before I preach. Whereas if I was just glib and could do it easily, I don't think that would have happened. Does that help? Yeah. So I don't think I'm so smart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's I good. think uh, it's like the, um, the guy that was trying out for the football team said to the coach, he said, I may not be big, but I'm slow. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. <laughs> what did you
you guys have any other questions that you wanted to ask before I get into the readers' questions? Uh, there was one question, maybe just one last question. I'm always intrigued by, your know, 1 Corinthians in, intrigues me as a letter for a number of reasons. And the first chapter where Paul is really going after those who are into rhetoric. Yeah. And he's saying it's not rhetoric, yeah. it's the power of the cross. Yeah. But there's still, there's still a difference between good delivery and bad delivery. Yes. There are still people who, they may have all the theology in the world, they may be godly people, they may be able to stand up and mumble through a sermon, but yeah. aesthetics yeah. counts, rhetoric counts. Yeah. How do we, I mean, you're a gifted public speaker. How yeah. do you strike a balance between it being the form that you provide because you're a good communicator yeah. and the power of the cross that, yeah. that underlies the sermon? Well, um, just to begin, and quickly, in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's I think, basically addressing the sophistic sophists and their tradition. And you know that the sophists, um, uh, they, they wore makeup. They had letters of recommendation read, as you know, before they would, their front men would come and they would speak. And then they spoke in, in those rhetorical categories which were all laid out. And so Paul, Paul is not... Uh, clouding up and reigning on eloquence, he's reigning on the sophistic tradition, the sophists and what they did. It's no business like show business. Yeah. But because uh, I, just, I just read uh, last night purple passages out of Paul, those polished paradoxes, you know, all those contrasts, uh, reaching for... Uh, uh, illustration like in in the uh, in in the uh, the triumph the Roman triumph and and uh, so on so I think I think Paul worked hard at communicating mm -hmm. and that Paul was passionate and Paul was clear and sometimes he used really incredible vocabulary in some of his passages I, I don't know what you think of first Corinthians 13 but I think mm -hmm. it's fairly exalted don't you and his logic so Paul was logical and he was passionate. I, I do think, uh, Carl, since you asked me, um, one of the things that I, I am concerned about is that in our postmodern culture where we're, we wanna communicate very basically and effectively that, that, that uh, people don't care about words. Well, I think words are very important. So, for instance, if you take Churchill's great phrase, we have nothing to give you but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Notice those are four short words. If you replace toil with perspiration, it would never be quoted. <laughs> right? Correct. So to sit down and say, how are these words working? and to use uh, metaphorical words and words that emote things, uh, I think is, uh, is important. And so I think we should be careful about our words. I don't mean to be over the top, but if you're gonna sit down, I think words are important, so. Well, thanks very much. It's good. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, to download the message, The Glory of Christ in the Proclamation of the Gospel, from Kent Hughes. Next week, the spin mob inhabits the Christian bestsellers list and asks some tough questions. There's a new catchphrase I've been hearing, and that is um, a courageous conversation. And I think it's time for us to have a courageous conversation about the crap that is being marketed (laughs) to the church again. Amy, why do so many Christian women read garbage? All that and more next time. Thanks for listening. Now, just before you guys get started, we, uh, we have a special gift for Dr. Hughes today. Uh, this, this, this gift, we, we spared no expense. Just want you to know, can you hear me in the back row? Yes. All right. <laughs> we, have a, we have a newly minted mug. It says, Truman is my homeboy. <laughs> All right. That is great. I will take that home. Drink out of that.